Thank you very much. Appreciate that, worship team, Dan. I want to thank you for the opportunity that our family had to get away for a little while. We had a great time with all of our kids up um, in Yosemite, and so I really appreciate that. Um, greatly appreciate Mark and Dan and their faithful ministry of the Word. So uh, it was it was a blessed time. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, before we get back into uh, the book of Acts, I'd like to spend another Sunday looking at a passage that addresses the issue of anxiety and, and worry. Matthew 6 is obviously part of the um, Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord Jesus talks about life in the kingdom, talks about um, character of those who are in the kingdom and what it looks like to love and live in the kingdom of God. And in the midst of this passage in verse 28, he asks the question, why are you worried? And so that's what we want to talk about this morning is the issue of worry. And I ran across this quote from Matthew Henry, a good old Puritan, who said, there is scarcely any one sin against which our Lord Jesus more largely and earnestly warns his disciples than the sin of disquieting, distracting, distrustful cares about the things of this life. And so what he's highlighting is, if you look at what we have recorded in Scripture at least, and we look at what the Lord Jesus talked about, and especially his addressing of various sins, worry is right there at the top in terms of how much time uh, Jesus talks about the issue of worry and and how to think about it and how to address it. And so obviously it must be something that's very common uh, to us as sinners and it must be something that's actually very dangerous to us as sinners as well if the Lord Jesus would spend that much time talking about it. And so I'd like to read for us verses 24 through 34 of Matthew chapter 6. It says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of God. You may have noticed in the passage three different times the Lord commands us to not worry. In verse 25, he says, do not be worried about your life. In verse 31, he says, do not worry then saying. Then in verse 34 again, he says, so do not worry about tomorrow. Again and again, he says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. And he raises the question in light of the truth, why are you worried? And so that's what we want to think about is what this passage has to say to us because the reality is all of us wrestle with this to one degree or, or another. We don't all worry about the same kinds of things. We don't all worry in the same way. 
but we all have concerns about the future. We all struggle in really thinking rightly about it and feeling rightly about it and responding rightly to it. There was a story about a man who was a Christian and he wanted to fight worry. And so what he came up with was a Wednesday worry box. And so what he did was every time he was burdened about something and began to worry, meaning to have an undue concern uh, for something that might happen in the future, he would write it down and slip it in the box and would say to himself, I'm not going to worry about this until Wednesday. And he said that it actually helped him in a sense to kind of put those things off And many times, at least he would say most of the time, by the time he got to Wednesday, all of those things either were resolved because they weren't an issue anymore or they weren't that much of a concern. So it kind of highlights the fact that a lot of the things we are worried about with regard to the future never come to pass. But fighting worry really takes a lot more than just a worry box because there's a lot more involved in worry than just, I just need to write it down and put it in a box. Even though strategies like that can be a practical way of applying what we see in Matthew 6, but really Matthew 6 highlights for us what the issues are that underlie our worry and our anxiety. We mentioned um, several weeks ago when we look at Philippians 4, it says, do not be anxious. The word for anxious in that passage is the same word for worry in Matthew 6. We're talking about the same thing. So I'd just like to walk us through this passage just briefly and help us think through it just a little bit. Um, One day, John Wesley was walking with a gentleman who was worried, and he was wrestling with doubting God's goodness and uh, was just concerned about a lot of things in his life. And uh, John Wesley happened to look and see a cow who was standing behind a a solid wall and looking over that wall. And John Wesley said, you know what you need to do? You need to be like that cow. And you need to look over your problems. Because the reality is, you can't see through your problems. You need to look over your problems. And I share that just to say that John Wesley, in a sense, was simply saying, your problem is where you're looking. That cow is looking over the wall, not trying to look through the wall because he can't see anything. So he was saying to the man, your issue with wrestling with God's goodness and worry is an issue of where you're looking and how you're looking at things. And that's, I think, one way to think about verse 24 when it says, no one can serve two masters or lords. The same word for lord uh, could be translated lord. Two masters or two lords. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Word despiser means to think little of. You'll either think much of one and little of of the other, or vice versa. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the word for serve there is the idea of worship. You can't actually look to God for what you need and desire, and at the same time look to wealth. You're going to look to one or the other. And the word there is mammon. It can be translated riches or money or uh, wealth. But the picture is uh, of looking to something. There's an, a verse in the Old Testament where it talks about how many slaves uh, in a household, they would be constantly watching the hand of their master. And they wouldn't move until they saw the master's hand. But once the master raised his hand, they would move. They were constantly watching the master and moving based on what they saw coming from the master. So the picture there is a picture of what are we looking to? And therefore, how are we orienting our lives around either God or things, possessions, money, in light of the issue of worry. Now, why do I bring verse 24 in? In your Bible, if it's like my Bible, they make a separation between verse 24 and verse 25. But if you notice in verse 25, it starts off by saying, for this reason. 
which means it's connected to verse 24 and maybe even further back, depending on how you group those verses together. But it's at least referring back to verse 24. And so verse 24 is the basis, in a sense, for Jesus saying, for this reason, do not be worried. In light of the fact that worry, you could argue, is a God thing. It's really about who you're looking to as the God of your life. Meaning, God in the sense of where are you looking for help and where are you looking for happiness? That is practically the God of your life. Are you looking to things and money and your job and those kinds of things? Or are you looking to God? And so it's highlighting the fact that, like Matthew Henry was saying, there must be something really important about this worry thing. But the Lord Jesus spent so much time talking about it. And I think it's because of this connection to verse 24 that it says something about practically what we're doing in terms of worshiping, how we're practically looking to things or to God uh, in our life for what we need. And I think that's why the Lord Jesus in the parable of the sower, uh, he talks about the thorny ground and he says something very interesting. He says, for instance, in Matthew 13, 22, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It's interesting, linguists look at our word for worry in the English or anxiety and they tend to trace it back to um, the idea of that which strangles which is very interesting in light of how the Lord Jesus references the worries of the world and puts it together with the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word. What does that mean? It prevents us from trusting God's word as we should. And so the issue of worry is an issue of worship. It's an issue of trust. It's a very much an issue of practically who are we looking to as the God of our life in certain situations and in certain ways. And so I think that's why the Lord Jesus did spend as much time as he did talking about this issue. Well, if you look, uh, he goes on in verse 25 to say, For this reason I say to you, in light of the issue of what you're worshiping, what you're looking to, for what you need, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried, which is a command. Don't continue in the habit of being worried. That's the picture there being worried about your life, which means all that you need and all that you desire for life, as to what you eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now the question is, what is he talking about there in that question? I think the best way to understand it is he's asking the question, is not what sustains life more than food? And isn't the life of your body more than simply the result of what you wear? That there's more to the upkeep of your body and the sustaining of your life than food and clothing. Basically, what I want us to see is that, as I said, worry reveals who we're serving, but it also exposes where were our dependence there? And therefore, it exposes a wrong dependence on other things besides God. It shows us where we're really looking, at least in that respect, for the source of life. Am I looking to God as the source of my life, or am I looking to something else? For instance, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 8 where the Lord says, and he's talking about Uh, how he provided for Israel in in the wilderness. If you remember, he gave them manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And he says, Moses comments on that in Deuteronomy 8, 3, and says, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That you don't live by bread, 
you live by what proceeds out of the mouth of God. I believe it means the thing that's sustaining you is not the bread. It's the command, the authority, it's the power of God. God is the one who's sustaining you. That's why Moses could spend 80 days on Mount Sinai without eating and drinking and live. Because God was sustaining him. And so there's a, there's a sense in which God obviously sustains us through bread, but he's not limited to bread. And so I think the point that the Lord is making here is, is what's keeping you alive the food you eat or the clothes you wear and the things that you're looking to materially? No. The thing that keeps you alive or the one who keeps you alive and keeps me alive is actually God. And so that's one reason why earlier in Matthew 6, the Lord actually says, do not uh, store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Uh, I've heard people talk about the issue of hoarding. And I don't don't think there's always one reason why people get into hoarding of possessions and things. But at least sometimes, and maybe many times, it's because it's an issue of security. I'm trying to provide for the future. I'm trying to make sure I'm okay in the future. And I I may need this in the future. And so it's a kind of uh, attempt to provide for myself... And someone has said about that, hoarding is an attempt to completely cover our material bases so that God becomes unnecessary. A common goal of hoarders is to achieve financial independence. He goes on to say, when we stockpile riches for every conceivable scenario, aren't we trusting in our riches rather than, than in God? And he talks a little bit about saving, and he says, saving's a good thing, but we can go too far even in saving and trying to basically provide for the future in a way that we don't have to depend on God. And he highlights the fact that we must never save in order to um, prevent our need for God or anybody else. And that could be many times behind what motivates uh, hoarding or even not even hoarding. Maybe just I want my retirement account to be as big as it can be. Um, And there's nothing wrong with saving, nothing wrong with providing for retirement, but we can go too far in those things. And it could be driven by, um, I'm worried about the future. I'm going to try to make sure I cover every possible scenario. And therefore, we're not as ready to give and minister to others and do other things that God calls us to do. And so that's why there are those who, like Hudson Taylor taught, his fellow missionaries, you on the mission field need to pray and give everything to God. That will help you not be troubled about anything. Give everything you have to God. And in a sense, it's a way of saying, God, uh, it's yours. You can take it or you can let me have it. We hold all things with an open hand and we entrust God uh, with those things so that we can rely on him. So that if he takes away our job, we weren't depending on our job anyway. If he takes away our health, we weren't depending on our health anyway to to provide for us. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but it is exactly what the Lord is uh, arguing for in this passage in various ways. Well, he goes on to talk in verse 26 by saying, Look, and that's a command, at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? R.C. Sproul, obviously before he went on to be with the Lord, talked about the time that he and his wife and his three-year-old daughter were in Holland, and they were learning the Dutch language, and his little three-year-old daughter learned to speak one sentence very well. Every day the baker would come to their door, and his little girl would say, Good morning, Mr. Baker. A half a loaf of sliced bread, please. And she would say it in Dutch every morning. So she learned that phrase very, very well. And the reality is, the baker delivered bread to them every day because by the next day it was inedible. There were no preservatives in it. 
So it was truly daily bread. And so what we find here is the Lord saying in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't plant seeds. They don't grow crops. They don't harvest those crops and put them in barns so that they'll have something for tomorrow. They get their food one day at a time. It doesn't mean they don't do anything. It means they're limited in what they can do. They can't build barns, but they can look for food, and they do. So it's not that they're inactive, but they are limited. But they do what they can do. The Bible doesn't say they feed themselves. The Bible says God feeds them. They do what they can do, and the Father, our Heavenly Father, feeds them. And so the argument is from the lesser to the greater, and the Lord says, now think about this. And he commands us to look at the birds, which means look at how God has ordered things around you. He's ordered things around you to teach you and to teach me what he's like and what he's up to. He feeds the birds. If he will feed the birds, isn't he going to feed his children? Would he be so unloving as to feed the birds but not feed his children? What father would take all the money that he earned every week and buy bird seed and never feed his children? No good father would do that, that's for sure. And the Lord Jesus is arguing, we have a good, good father. And earlier in Matthew 6, the Lord teaches us to pray. And one of the things he teaches us to pray is, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say pray, give us for the next 20 years what we will need. Now, in our country, we have been blessed richly. And many of us have more than we need just for one day. The Lord teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because that's really all we need is this day's bread. Um, I mentioned the whole issue of manna. Um, That was part of God's wise training of his people. He fed them one day at a time. And you might remember that he said through Moses, You're to go out every morning and you're to gather the manna. But you're not to save it overnight. They gathered it up and they still saved it overnight. And the next day it was spoiled. It had worms in it. And Moses says, don't you remember? God told you not to save it. It's going to be one day at a time. Except there was an exception. And you may remember that the exception was Friday's bread would last through Saturday because Saturday was the Sabbath and he didn't want them going out gathering. And so God made it last Friday through Saturday, but every other day it only lasted one day. It's a great illustration of the fact that God was in charge of all of that and teaching them, trust me, trust my word. Yes, Friday, you can gather enough for both Friday and Saturday, but otherwise it's just one day at a time. And so um, we have to understand that there's, there's something in us that resists living day by day. Um, we resist living paycheck by, paycheck by paycheck, so to speak. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't save and you shouldn't want to be able to plan for the future and prepare for the future. But what if you have to live paycheck by paycheck? What if you have to live one day at a time? In fact, most of the workers in the New Testament time were paid one day at a time. That's just the way it was. And so in our abundance here in this country, uh, we tend to think it's terrible to have to live like a bird and live it lit one day at a time. And yet, maybe that's exactly how God orders things so that we will just trust him one day at a time. Well, he goes on um, in verse 27, and he says, Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now, the word hour there is actually the word cubit, which is the same measure of what you find in the Old Testament when God tells Noah, build the, the ark of this, you know, this many cubits. 
And so it's a, a, it's a measure, it's, something, it's a form of measurement, of length. And so the word life there, who can add a single cubit to his life, probably has to do with the idea of who can make his life longer. I mean, the Bible tells us that our days have already been ordained. But the Lord is also saying, through worry, can you really um, produce anything? Is there anything you can really make happen? And we have the idea that worry is productive when it's really not. Um, Someone has said, worry is like a rocking chair. You can go back and forth, but you're not going anywhere in a rocking chair. You're not moving anywhere. There's a lot of activity, but it's not producing anything. And there are doctors who would say, uh, for for instance, one has said, we do not know why it is that worriers die sooner than the non-worriers, but it is a fact. There are those in the medical community that would say, those who are more prone to worry are less likely to be as healthy and die even sooner. So you could argue that the Lord is saying worry is not productive. In fact, it's harmful. It is harmful to you, not only spiritually, but also physically. Instead of lengthening your life through worry, you can shorten your life through worry is the the implication. Um, And so the encouragement the Lord is giving us is to not think that, you know, murder and adultery and those things are really big sins that I really have to be careful of, but my day-to-day worry isn't that big a deal. The Lord is saying, oh, no, when you really think about um, the issue of it being a God thing and, and how it can choke out your faith in the Word of God and how it can affect you spiritually and physically and all those things, Murder and adultery is serious, but worry is more serious than may we may than we realize as well. And so he spends time talking about that. Goes on in verse twenty-eight, and he says, "And why are you worried about clothing? Observe, which is a command to deeply consider. Observe how the lilies of the field grow; they do not toil, nor do they spin." that I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And so the Lord tells us to look at the birds, to observe the flowers. And both of those words, look and observe, are talking about really take some time to consider what's going on here. With the birds, they are active, but it's God who's feeding them. But they can't do everything that we can do. They can't plant and grow crops and build barns. They do what they can do, but still God is the one who's feeding them. Flowers can't even go look for worms. They're just growing as God gives them the energy to grow, and God is the one who is clothing them. And so you could even think about it in terms of, with the birds you might say, you know, things are changing in our culture. Everything's going to AI, You know, maybe I'm not going to be able to do what is going to be needed in the future. How am I going to make a living? How am I going to survive? What what if I don't have the skills? God will take care of you. Your father will take care of you. What if you become disabled and you're like a flower and you can't move? Your father will take care of you. The picture is, even if you're limited in what you can do, The Father is the one who takes care of you. Even if you get to a place where you can't do anything on your own, the Father is the one who takes care of you. That's the picture that Jesus is painting here for us, a very, very important picture, very, very real picture that we all have to really think about. So he says, why are you worried? What if you get to a place where you can't do anything? Like the flowers, God can still provide for you. You know, sometimes we talk about the idea that, especially as men, that we're the provider for our families. And certainly that is true in a certain sense. We're supposed to be responsible for the provision of our family, but we're not ultimately the providers. Any more than the the bird that goes around looking for worms for its little babies in the nest, 
You could, you could argue that there's a sense in which the bird is responsible to do that, but the Bible says ultimately, ultimately God is the one who provides for the birds. In the same sense, yes, we as men are, are responsible to provide for our families, but the Bible says ultimately God is the one. And so if I lose my job or if I lose my health, God is still the one who's promised to provide for our families. And so the Bible's encouraging us, the Lord is encouraging us to be careful of thinking that we're more responsible than we are. We are to be responsible, but not too responsible. And ultimately, uh, the whole issue is an issue of uh, faith, which is what... um, let me just back up just a second. This is there was a funny story that I wanted to share. There's a, there's a woman because this this I think highlights the fact that we really think worry is more productive than what I've argued for so far. The Lord is saying worry is not productive; is actually harmful. There was a, a husband one time who said why, to his wife, "Why are you always worrying? It doesn't do any good." And she says, "No, it does do some good because 90% of the things I worry about never come to pass." Now, what is the logic there? If I worry about it, it's more likely not to come to pass. And so I am doing something. It's a faulty logic. Because God says, no, don't worry about it. But we can get the idea that worry does do something. And that's why we might get upset with people who aren't worried about what we're worried about. Because we think they don't really care. But God makes it very, very clear that the illusion is that worry is is doing something, but it really isn't. And it is actually an expression of unbelief, which is believing lies. And so in verse 30, the Lord says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? George Mueller said, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. And he's talking about sinful care. Last time we talked about anxiety, we highlighted the fact that there are times in the New Testament where the Bible uses the same word for anxiety or worry to talk about proper concern for our future, or proper concern for the future of others. But Here, the Lord is addressing sinful anxiety over the future, whether it's our future or someone else's future, and it's rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in not trusting God. It's rooted in believing lies. Um, The Lord uses this phrase, uh, men of little faith, uh, three other times. Uh, In Matthew 8, 26, uh, in the midst of the, the story about the storm, where Jesus is in the boat and they're all afraid because the storm comes up. He says to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and became perfectly calm. The idea is you've got me in the boat with you. Why are you so fearful? He uses the same phrase in Matthew 14, 31. When it says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of Peter and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter says, Lord, if that's you on the water, command me and I'll come out so that I can come to you. Peter gets out on the water. He sees the waves. He begins to sink. He cries out. And the Lord Jesus catches him and he says, oh, you of little faith, you took your eyes off of me and you put it on the waves. And then we see it also, which... In another passage, Matthew 16, where in verse 8, Jesus says, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? So they were going somewhere. They had forgotten to take bread with them. The disciples are talking about the fact that they have forgotten bread. And Jesus says, Don't you remember that I fed the 5,000? Don't you remember that I fed the 4,000? Why are you concerned that you don't have any bread? They would say, well, because we don't have any bread. (laughs) We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. But he says, you have me. I'm the bread of life. And I will give you whatever you need. And that's the reality for all of us. We 
we don't have in front of us exactly what we can touch and feel and see and smell, then we begin to panic, just like the disciples. But we've got Jesus in the boat with us. We've got Jesus with us, who is the bread of life, who is the one who sustains us and provides for us. And so uh, the Lord highlights the fact that the real issue is the issue of trust. When I am sinfully anxious, unduly anxious, it's exposing the fact that I'm beginning to look to something or someone else besides God, and I'm not trusting God as I should. Well, he goes on in verse 31, and he says, Do not begin to worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, which means those who do not worship the true God, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. It means in in an idolatrous way. They seek these things because they believe those things are necessary for their life. They're not looking to God. They're looking to those things. But, he says, your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And so, the question comes with regard to worry. Is it really that we're not sure we're going to have what we need? Maybe in certain cases. But many times it's that we're not going to have, we're concerned that we're not going to have what we want. Which means it's an issue of not simply knowing what I need and trusting the Father to give me what I need. It's that maybe what God gives me isn't going to be everything I want. It's an issue of God's will versus my will. It's an issue of whether or not God is going to do what I want him to do. So when I think about my future, I might can say in theory, I know God's going to give me what what I need, but what I'm really worried about is whether or not he's going to give me what I want. Or I might think about my children, or I might think about other people I love, and I say, I know God is going to give them what they need in some sense, but I'm not sure he's going to give them what I want them to have. What if his will isn't my will? And so there's that real issue of, again, going back to the issue of who am I worshiping? What is my God? Ultimately, it comes down to, is God God or or do I want to be God over the situation? Do I really want things to play out just like I want them to play out? And I'm really anxious and worried over whether or not my will is going to be done. And I think that's why Jesus says and. When he teaches us to pray earlier in Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A huge part of our worry is whether or not our will is going to be done. And that's why the Lord teaches us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've mentioned before the old Puritan who sat down to a meal of uh, dry bread and water, and he prayed, Father, I thank you for this meal, uh, all this, and Jesus too. The idea behind that kind of praying is, in Jesus I have everything I need, and if God has willed me to drink, drink water and eat a piece of dry bread, and that's all that I have, then... God's will be done because I have all that I need in Jesus. Um, And so the battle is very much a battle over as we started in verse 24. It's really an issue of where am I looking and what do I want? Do I really want God's will to be done or my will to be done? Because the Gentiles are wanting their will to be done. Those who don't know God and they're looking to things to fulfill their will And it's only as we come to Christ by God's grace that we begin to think differently and desire differently. Well, we get down to the real uh, kicker practically in verse 33. When Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's a story of someone who had just become uh, a licensed pilot, And for one of the first times, he was having to fly in clouds, and he was trying to land, and he was very anxious about trying to do that. And someone in the control tower just came on 
uh, the radio and said, listen, do what we tell you and we'll take care of everything else. You just focus on what I've told you to do and don't be worried about anything else. your, Your concern needs to be with what we're telling you to do. We will take care of everything else. And that's really what the Lord is saying in this verse when he talks about the importance of seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You focus on what's really important in life and let me take care of you. Let me add to you all the things that you need. So what does it mean to seek first, which is a command, seek first his kingdom? Well, God's kingdom, uh, according to Romans 14, is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's basically pursuing my happiness in submission to the king. That's the kingdom of God. It's pursuing my happiness in terms of the kingdom of God, that I believe that there could be nothing greater than to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be a part of God's family. And therefore, um, if I lose the world, I'd rather lose the world than to lose all that God's promised us in his rule and reign over all things. And that's why he says, and his righteousness, because what is that? That's basically living to please God. It's practical righteousness. Obviously, it's rooted in the gift of Christ's righteousness to us, but the practical side of it, day in, day out, is where I pursue my happiness, which is the kingdom of God, through holiness, by seeking to be righteous, seeking to be like Christ. And so the issue isn't whether or not I have more than a glass of water and a piece of dry bread, the issue is, am I, in that circumstance, still pursuing my happiness in God and seeking to be holy, seeking to please God, being pleased with God and seeking to please God? Is my focus on the will of God? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So just practically, it's, it's an issue of, am I being consumed with trying to get what I want and having my will be done, am I really consumed with doing God's will? So the Lord is saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is another way of saying, entrust all that you are to the king and live to please him according to his word. And he promises he's going to take care of everything. He promises that he's going to take care of everything. So, The ditches are this. There's the ditch of being um, irresponsible and the ditch of being too responsible. Now, being too responsible is worry, sinful worry. Because I'm trying to make sure I provide for myself or for somebody else. Being irresponsible is where, for instance, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So you can't just say, well, God's going to provide. I'm just going to sit home and not do anything. No, part of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is to do what God tells you to do, which is to work, make a living. And so it's not being irresponsible, but it's not being too responsible, as if my life depends on my job. My life depends on what I do. No, no, God is the one who feeds the birds and he feeds us as well. And so we fight worry by faith, that works through love, love by seeking to do the will of God. Well, let me just wrap this up very quickly here. The last verse in this chapter, verse 34, he says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. The word care there is actually the same word for worry. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble or evil of its own. So basically the idea is that you have enough on a daily basis to focus on and deal with that you don't need to bring into today tomorrow's possibilities because we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold for one thing. We don't even know if we're going to have tomorrow. 
Today might be our last day. We, never, we don't know that. And God only gives grace for today. He doesn't give grace for tomorrow's issues. He just gives grace for today. And so for living one day at a time, um, asking God for our daily bread, which means more than food, it means spiritual provision, all the provision we need. God's going to give what we need for today. But if we're trying to bring into today, tomorrow, there's not going to be enough grace for that because he calls us to live one day at a time. There's an illustration that Spurgeon uses. He talks about a real event that happened in history where this small group of uh, soldiers defeated a huge army of soldiers because there was this narrow pass that the large army had to come through. And they had to come through it one at a time. And Spurgeon says, you know what? If that small group of soldiers had ran through that pass and tried to take on that huge army of soldiers, they would have died quickly. They would have lost the battle. But instead, they stayed back and they let those soldiers in that large army come through that pass one at a time, and they killed them one at a time. And that small group of soldiers defeated this huge group of soldiers because they took them one at a time. There's a sense in which you could argue that that's exactly what the Lord is saying here. Take each day at a time, one day at a time, and God will give you the grace to overcome what you need to overcome. But finally, this is probably the biggest um, takeaway, I think, is to think about what the underlying assumptions are here. The underlying assumption of this whole passage is that you and I as Christians have a father. We have a father who is infinite, who is all-loving, who's all-powerful, who's all-wise, who's all-knowing. And worry is living like you are fatherless. You're living like you don't have a father. You're living like you're an orphan. That's what worry is. It's fatherlessness. That's the whole underlying assumption of this passage. There's a story that a pastor tells of being on an airplane where it got really rocky because of a storm that it went through. And everybody around him was worried and fretting and really scared. And he saw this little girl just reading a book and totally at ease the whole time. And afterwards, he walked over to her and said, hey, I just Notice that everybody, including myself, was a little disturbed by that storm, but you seem to be okay. And she simply said, we know my daddy's the pilot, and he told me he's taking me home. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Your daddy is the pilot, and no matter how rough it gets, he's promised to take you home. He's promised to meet your needs. Will you trust his word? Many times we don't feel like God is taking care of us. Many times we don't feel like um, God is at work. Many times we don't see how it's going to work out. The issue always is, will I trust simply what God has said? You read a passage like this and you can walk away thinking, that doesn't mean Jesus is telling me not to worry. He's giving me all these reasons why I shouldn't worry. I don't think that's enough. I think I need more than that. And the Lord is saying, do what Abraham did. Just believe the word of God. Just believe the word of God. Don't don't let your feelings or your own rationale and thinking keep you from simply looking at at what God has said and believing what God has said and fight to do just that. And so both in Matthew 6 earlier, it talks about prayer. Matthew 7, it talks about prayer. Yes, we are to pray, but we're to pray to a good, good father. Let me wrap this up. I have a summary at the end of your notes. Um, Dan preached on Romans 6, which basically says, worry is not your master. It's not my master. It's a sin that is not to be our master. And so we don't have to worry. Mark preached on growing in love through the knowledge of the truth and applying the truth. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. You're to be a loving person by putting to death worry, 
by knowing the truth and applying that truth, believing the word of God, so that we need to fight the unbelief and the idolatry that feeds worry. We need to see the providence of God in his care over his world. We need to think deeply about the truth revealed in his word. We need to trust the promises that God has made to his children. We need to ask God for what we need. We need to talk to ourselves about the truth instead of just listening to our worries all day long. We need to do what we can and should do to be responsible. We should focus our lives on God, though, and doing his will and trust him to take care of us. We need to remember that we are beloved children of a wise and loving and all-powerful Father and take one day at a time, trust and love, and do the next thing. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in this passage, and I pray that we would truly believe that we need not be ruled by the sin of worry and anxiety, and that we would truly believe that we can grow in love and we can put to death this sin more and more as we know and apply the truth that we see here. And we pray that you would help us to do just that. Help us not to see our all-consuming worries as being little things, but really as a, as a danger to our faith and a danger to our joy and a hindrance to us loving other people. So, Father, please help us to see where we are in this fight and what we need to do and help us to grow in our fight against worry. We're all going to fail at different times, and we thank you that there's no condemnation, that there's forgiveness, but help us not to give in to our worries and listen to our worries, but help us to truly believe that we have a Father who loves us. We're not orphans. And you will take care of us. Help us to seek to live to do your will and trust you as we should for all that we need. May we sense your love and presence in greater and greater ways. In Jesus' precious name we pray. We thank you. Amen and amen.